Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Well, this morning we're resuming our study of Matthew. We've had two special services, uh, wonderful services, uh, to commemorate the ascension of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now we come uh, to Matthew chapter 16 and beginning at verse 21, and we will go all the way into chapter 17 and verse 13. As we will see, all of this goes together and it has to do with what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple? Jesus had begun the discipleship of those who followed him by giving them a simple command, follow me. And in this passage, Jesus will begin to make clear to them, more clear to them, uh, in a very, uh, you might even say disturbing way, certainly a challenging way about what following Jesus means. And as he will tell his disciples, so he tells us today, the following him means taking up your cross. It means losing your life for the sake of Christ in order to find your life. So let's then read the words of Scripture. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're not offense to me. You're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, His brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, 
Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. God our Father, we pray now that by your own Spirit you would lead us into your word. Lord Jesus, you spoke these words not only to your disciples, your first disciples, but also to us. Guarantee by the Spirit, Lord, that we will understand these words and that uh, we will understand how they apply to us today and that we will be challenged and that we will follow you, that we will take up our crosses, that we will lose our lives in order to find them in you. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, Jesus began the discipleship, as I've already stated, by calling these people simply to follow him. And that's what a disciple is, a follower. But now Jesus is bringing them to the point where discipleship is taking them some places that they did not envision and places that are hard to go. Their whole conception of following Christ, their whole conception indeed of the Messiah and who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah's road would be like and what the kingdom would be like. All of this is being completely challenged and stood on its head here as they come to realize the truth. And what Jesus is showing them here in this passage is that his own victory, the victory of the Messiah, and the launching of the worldwide kingdom of heaven lies beyond two paradoxical and almost inconceivable events. They lie beyond the death of the Messiah and the judgment of Israel. And both of those events spelled utter defeat in the minds of the disciples. Oftentimes today we hear uh, explanations given the crucifixion of Christ and, and the uh, Christian claim from the earliest days that Jesus had risen from the dead, that this was simply a way of the disciples trying to continue the movement that Jesus had started. So they claimed that he had raised from the dead. Well, that thing, that kind of claim may play in our own day since we're into kind of Gnostic spiritualism, uh, kind of otherworldly Uh, thought that is disconnected from this world. The problem is is that that would never play in the first century. No Jew would ever come up with such a story. For a crucified Messiah simply meant the end of a messianic movement. There was no greater and more final uh, declaration of defeat than that. And so if your Messiah, if if the one that you thought was the coming king of Israel was crucified by the Romans, you had two choices. And, and the Jews had faced this many times before because there were many would-be messiahs in that day. You either disbanded, and everybody goes home, or you get a new messiah. Now, the Christians had the perfect candidate if they wanted to play uh, by these normal uh, rules. The perfect candidate to 
make the new Messiah to keep the movement going would have been James, the brother of Jesus, because he came to be the leading figure in uh, the church of Jerusalem. We see that in the book of Acts. And he was the Lord Jesus. He was his brother, a half-brother, rather. Um, but that's not what they did. They made a claim that made absolutely no sense from any perspective, and they made this claim simply because it was true. Christians who died in the sands of the Roman arena on the basis of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, they didn't die there because of the idea. They didn't die there because of the spiritual experience or this new religious experience that Christianity had brought in the world. That simply doesn't get you very far when you're staring a lion in the face. They died for one simple reason. It was true. It was true. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Now, this is the path that Jesus says that his Messiahship lies. This is the path down which the coming of the worldwide kingdom of heaven lies. Not only that, but it also lies down the path of God's judgment coming upon his own covenant people. God's judgment coming upon uh, Israel itself. That is another thing that was inconceivable to them. In fact, the destruction of Jerusalem, which is something that Jesus is going to make explicit as we go along, that's another thing that spells utter defeat. That's the defeat of God's people. That's the defeat of the kingdom. How can it be the establishing of the kingdom? Well, this is what Jesus is talking about in verses 27 and 28 when he talks about the Son of Man coming in his glory. Now you remember the Son of Man is something we talked about quite a bit when we were back in chapter 13. This is the phrase that Jesus, the title he always used to call himself. And it's something that takes us and locates us directly on the map of Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel sees the vision of one like the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days and receiving all authority over all peoples and nations that all peoples and nations should serve him. And of course, that's where the Gospel of Matthew will end, with Jesus making that claim, which is another way of him saying, See, I am the Son of Man. I am going before the Ancient of Days, and I will receive these things. Well. We all know that the Bible teaches us that Jesus will come again at the end, on the last day, at the day of the final resurrection. And there is a final judgment, and he is the judge. The Bible very clearly teaches that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Notice he says, Assuredly, I say to you, in other words, I'm not kidding here. I'm not, I'm not speaking metaphorically. I'm telling you, there are some standing here, some of you, shall not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now you remember that the coming that Daniel 7 talks about is not a coming of the Son of Man to earth at all. That's not where He's coming in Daniel 7. He's coming, but He's coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days to receive all power and authority. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That was going to happen in their lifetimes. And the sign, the proof that he had come before the Ancient of Days and received all power and authority is that he would show his sovereignty over history. 
he would show his exercise of judgment, not just as the last day, but reaching forward into history in real time. He would show that power and that authority by beginning judgment where judgment always begins, and that is with the household of God. Jesus would bring judgment on the covenant community, on those who stubbornly refused for 40 years to turn to the Messiah and to receive grace and forgiveness of sins and life in Him. So that's what he's talking about there. And Jesus is saying, this is where glory, this is where victory, this is where Messiahship, this is where the kingdom begins. Down this path, a cross for me, and judgment on the household of God. So this is why Peter rebukes Jesus. This is why he rebukes him. He takes him aside says, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. Verse 22. Now again, Peter is the one speaking. But he's not speaking for himself only. But almost certainly this is what all the disciples were feeling. This can't be so. Jesus can't be going to the cross. This is not so. This can't be. This shall not happen to you. And Peter's uh, perception of the Messiah, as well as the disciples, were almost certainly shaped by the traditional Jewish conception of a king on an earthly throne, a king with charismatic powers and great military powers, who would restore Israel to national and international preeminence by turning the table on the Romans and the other Gentile powers. That's their conception. Crucifixion doesn't fit with that, nor does God's judgment coming on uh, Israel. Now, Jesus is going to show Peter and the disciples that the kingdom of heaven, while it, it does not mean less than the traditional Jewish view, it does mean much more. In other words, the problem with the traditional Jewish vision of the Messiah and his kingdom was not that it was this worldly and therefore carnal. The problem with the traditional Jewish view of the Messiah and his kingdom is that it wasn't powerful enough to break the iron grip of Satan, sin, and death over the world. They were carnal in that sense. That kind of kingdom, you see, would not fundamentally change this fallen world. The kingdom that Jesus is establishing will. It will fundamentally change, fundamentally transform this fallen world. So Jesus must recalibrate Peter's and the disciples' understanding of the cross as the only way of victory for the Messiah, and for the kingdom, and for the world. But he has to recalibrate it, not down, but up. In other words, Jesus says, you need to change your expectations. Now, when we hear you need to change your expectations, we automatically assume that we need to lower our expectations. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is you need to raise your expectations substantially. The enthronement of Jesus as king of the world means that he brings grace and peace to the world. But it also means that those who oppose him will be brought under judgment. 
On the last day, yes, of course, but also now in history. And God, as I've already said, always judges his own household first. So, as I already mentioned, a crucified Messiah and a destroyed Jerusalem mean, meant defeat to any Jew. So Jesus gives the disciples something to assure them that the road of the cross and judgment on Israel is really the way to the glorification of Christ. It is really the way to the kingdom and therefore to the way of life for the disciples and for the world. And what he gives them to assure them is the transfiguration. He takes the three principal disciples, Peter, James, and John, takes them up on a high mountain, and he is transfigured before them. They see Christ in his glory. They see his divinity shining forth. It assures them, yes, this really is the way to glorification of the Messiah. This really is the way to the coming of the kingdom. And the transfiguration also assures the disciples that all of God's purposes for Israel, which is what Moses and Elijah signify here, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, all of that will be fulfilled by Jesus. In other words, all that Moses and Elijah look forward to and everything that God promised through them and the other prophets would come to pass through Jesus but only by Jesus going to the cross and only by judgment coming on his covenant people, God's covenant people. So the disciples then, they see this, they get this great assurance, this reaffirmation of promises that God has made, but they're still struggling to put everything together in their minds. And so they ask Jesus about Malachi's prophecy. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, and it says that before the great and coming day of the Lord, that Elijah would come forth first and prepare a people for the Lord. He would restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And so they ask Jesus about Malachi's prophecy that Elijah will come first. Now, Jesus has already told them earlier in, in uh, Matthew that John the Baptist really is Elijah. So that he's already told them that on at least one occasion. Okay? John the Baptist is the one who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But the prophecy says that Elijah is going to restore all things, and they're wondering about that. What does that mean? And so Jesus reiterates that these prophecies are true, but they have been fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. It is not going to be every physical Israelite that is going to be restored to the Lord. There is going to be a remnant that is restored to the Lord. But there will be many who harden themselves, who oppose Jesus Christ, and who will be judged. He assures them again. John the Baptist fulfilled that prophecy. But the Jewish leadership, given their hardness and blindness, had failed to recognize John, and they had, in fact, opposed him, and Herod had ultimately killed him. Now, Jesus says, as John had been martyred, so Jesus. They will do the same thing to Jesus. And what Jesus, I think, here is saying is just is that John's martyrdom is a kind of foreshadow of his own. 
Elijah had returned and the leaders had killed him, but that did nothing to thwart God's promises or purposes, but had paradoxically furthered them, and so too would be the cross of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem. This is another thing that speaks of the sovereignty of God in carrying forth his kingdom and in answering his promises, that oftentimes he brings to pass things which make no sense to us on the ground. How dejecting would it have been for the followers not only of John but of Jesus when they see John being killed, a man in his early 30s, this powerful and godly man, a great preacher of God, cut down in his early 30s before they would think he hasn't even come into the real heart of his ministry. He's cut down, and we think that the purposes of God have suffered and been thwarted. Not at all. Not at all. He did nothing. Jesus, another man in his early 30s, at the height of his ministry, crucified, put on the cross. Certainly, the prospects of the kingdom of God and of the people of God and the promises of God have been thwarted. Not at all. Not at all. God has promised, and by his zeal, he will accomplish it. So Jesus is telling the disciples that all of their dreams will come true, but not at all in the way that they're thinking. Their thinking needs adjustment. Their expectation needs adjustment. Again, up, not down. So the Father here in the Transfiguration reiterates, reiterates Jesus' teaching on the nature and calling of discipleship. Peter talks about building tabernacles for Jesus and Elijah and Moses. The Father says, this is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. In other words, obey Him. Follow Him. Trust completely in Him. Stake your life completely on Him. And with that, we're in a position, I think, to better understand the interchange between Peter and Jesus, as well as Jesus' teaching on the nature of discipleship. Peter rebukes Jesus, thinking that he's looking out for Jesus. He's looking out for the Messiah. He's looking out for the kingdom. It's his love for Jesus that makes him say, Lord, this shall not happen to you. You shall not be crucified. That's Peter's intentions. But what Peter is actually doing is standing between the Messiah and victory. He's standing between the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom. So Jesus rebukes Peter, and he instructs him and then the disciples on the true nature of discipleship. And this will serve as our application today, just as it was Jesus' application to his first disciples back then. Jesus makes it clear that the first duty of a disciple is to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. That is the first duty of a disciple. Follow him. In other words, to come after him. That's what Jesus called his disciples to do when he first called them. Follow me, he said to Peter. And it's interesting that when Jesus says to Peter, follow me in Matthew chapter 4, the Greek literally says, come after me. That's what he says, come after me. 
And it is the same Greek that Jesus uses now when he says to Peter, get behind me. In other words, Jesus is reminding Peter what the role of a disciple is. It is to get behind Jesus and to follow him. You cannot follow somebody from out in front of them. You can only follow them from behind them. And now Peter is not behind Jesus following him. He is out in front of Jesus putting a stumbling block before him. That's what Jesus says. That's why he calls him Satan. For the stumbling block is the same one that Satan placed before Jesus when he tempted Jesus back in the early days of his ministry. And what was that stumbling block that Satan placed before him? And what is the stumbling block that Peter, no matter how good his intentions, is placing before Jesus? It is to establish the kingdom apart from Christ's own suffering, death, and resurrection. It is the stumbling block that there is another way, that there is some other way to do this. It is a stumbling block that says to Jesus, don't live by God's word. Don't live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is a stumbling block that says, don't trust the Father when he says that he is with you and that the path of the cross is the path to glory and to life to the kingdom, and to power. And Jesus makes it clear that the cross is not only essential for him as the Messiah, it is essential for all those who follow him. Verse 24, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, Jesus' words have long been interpreted to mean certain forms of outward self-denial, including asceticism, vows of poverty, vows of celibacy, and the like. But in context, what is Jesus talking to his disciples about? He is talking to them, quite simply, about martyrdom. He's not speaking to them metaphorically. He's talking to them quite literally about being put to death for Christ's sake. Indeed, some of the disciples, including Peter, would be put to death for Jesus. And Jesus makes that clear to Peter after he is raised from the dead. In the closing chapters of the Gospel of John, he tells Peter that basically he's going to follow him to the cross. That wasn't true for all the disciples. It was not true for the Apostle John, but it was true for Peter. It was true for Paul. It was true for a number of them. It was true for a lot of Christians in the first century. And that quite literally is what Jesus is talking about, being ready and willing to die rather than to deny him, to be ready and willing to die for Jesus. So Jesus here draws a line in the sand. And every would-be disciple is on one side or the other. And this is the line. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Very clear. There are no exception. Everybody is in one category or the other. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus 
demands absolute loyalty. But as the Father promised Jesus the way of the cross was the way of resurrection life, so Jesus promises the disciples that even if one must lose the world for Christ's sake, this is the only way of life. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What does it gain a man, and what will a man give in exchange for his soul? All of this is the starting point for understanding and applying Jesus' words. He's talking about martyrdom. Being ready and willing to die for Christ's sake is what is demanded of every disciple. Being ready and willing to die for Christ's sake is what is demanded of every disciple. And coming to grips with that is the beginning of whatever else Jesus commands, whatever else his command means. See, it wasn't theoretical in their day. It was not theoretical. People could and would die for Jesus. Some of the people he was talking to. And that's what he's saying. So we need to ask ourselves, are you ready to die for Christ? And I'm not trying to be melodramatic. If it came to it, would you die rather than deny the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you suffer torture rather than deny the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you lose your job? Would you go to prison? Would you lose everything you have rather than deny the Lord Jesus Christ? Until we have answered that question, we're really not ready for all the rest of what discipleship means. This is the point that Jesus takes us to. And while during most of our history, this has been inconceivable, the thought of suffering for Jesus in America, the thought of dying for Jesus, the thought of going to prison because of the Christian faith, the thought of having all of your goods confiscated. These things have been inconceivable in our country, really during its whole existence, until now. This is no longer inconceivable. Now, I'm not trying to engage in fear-mongering here because I don't know what the sovereign Christ holds in store for us. My hope and my prayer is that Christ is going to pour out his spirit on our country and that he is going to expose and bring down unrighteousness and high places and put down those who uh, do not honor him, that he's going to grant a huge revival and reformation in his church that's going to pour out and that we're going to literally see tens and tens of millions of, of people coming to Christ in our country in a a turning of our country with one heart and one soul back to God and back to Christ. That's my hope and prayer, and that should be all of our hope and prayer. And that may be what he does. At some point, at some point in time, that is what will happen in America. But it could be hundreds of years down the road. We don't know. It could also be the case that we're looking forward to what they were looking forward to. They had the same kind of dreams for their nation. 
they could say the same kind of things that we like to say about our country, that our country had a Christian beginning, that it had Christian roots, that we have a Christian heritage. They could say the same thing in spades, could they not? How much more did their heart and soul long to see God's blessing on their country? But Jesus is going to tell them quite explicitly, it's not going to happen. There's going to be a remnant that is going to come out and follow me. But your country, Jerusalem, with the, the whole the temple, the whole symbol of Israel there is going to be utterly destroyed. It's not going to end well in the short term. He will make it very clear to them. And we could be facing the same kind of thing. We already see where there is a public ostracization of the Christian faith in our country. Christians are increasingly becoming the scapegoat people that you can safely uh, project the evils of society onto. That's becoming increasingly the case. And um, if it happens, it's not going to be a, a thing where we're openly and expressly persecuted because of our faith, because of our religion. That's never the way it happens. If it comes, it will come by saying that we are a social problem. It's not because of our religion. It's not because of our faith in Jesus. It's because we are a social problem because we are uh, we're haters. Now, you already see that kind of language being used. That was exactly the kind of language that was used toward the early Christians when they were persecuted in the Roman Empire. They weren't persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. They weren't persecuted because of their faith in the one true God. They were persecuted because they were exclusive. They were not inclusive. Their God, they said, was the only true God. Their God didn't work and play well with the other gods. They weren't persecuted because of their religion. They were persecuted because their religion was better than everybody else's. They were persecuted. They were literally called misanthropes. They were called haters of humanity because they rejected the other gods. And they rejected the sexuality that went along with the polymorphic spirituality that was accepted in that day. The two go together always as we are slowly learning again in our own day. Okay. So they're rejecting the spirituality, the idolatry of the day, and they're rejecting the polymorphic sexuality that goes along with it. And so they were called haters. They were enemies of society. They were breaking up the peace and the harmony and the peace and the prosperity of the Roman society. That's why they were persecuted, because these people were haters. And you can already see the same spin being used today toward Christians. I don't know what's going to happen with this, but I will tell you this. Things are getting dangerously close to the tipping point, to the passage of laws that will make it illegal to reject certain forms of spirituality or to call certain things sin, certain types of sexuality that go along with the spirituality, we're dangerously close to that. And once you get to that tipping point, suddenly Christians will start losing their businesses, 
start losing their homes, and so forth. Again, not because of their religion, but because they're haters and they're exclusive. And that will be the way it comes. And I will tell you this, we know from studying, you can go back, you can study Nazi Germany and other places like that. That tipping point, when it comes, it comes rapidly. The inconceivable becomes reality very rapidly when it happens. It'll be just like that. One day on Monday, things were the way they had always been, just kind of tricking, trickling along. On Tuesday, everything's different. That's the way it happened. So, this is no longer theoretical for us as American Christians. We need to ask ourselves, I'm not asking you, are you looking to die for Jesus? If you are looking to die for Jesus, we need to talk because you've got some serious spiritual problems. That's not discipleship. But if it comes down to it, would you rather die than deny the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you rather go to prison than deny the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you rather lose everything you have? Would you be willing to come home to your children and say, I don't know where our next meal is coming from, and I don't know where we're living tomorrow, rather than deny the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where we need to start, and then we need to back up from there. We need to back up from there. And children, you're not too young to follow your Lord. You are not too long, young to suffer for Christ. You're not too young. This is what it means for you too. And this is another way of Jesus saying that you are special to him. Following Jesus does, is not just something for adults. It's for you too. And if you're old enough to understand my words, to ask yourself these things. Now I ask you this, and this is, this is kind of really where the apostles go with the Christian faith. If you are willing to die for Christ, if you would die, if you would suffer torture in prison before you would deny Jesus, would you not be willing then to live for him today? Would you not be willing to live for him in the little things, in the little sacrifices that discipleship would call you to make? And most of those sacrifices have to do with us getting out of ourselves and living for Christ and living for the people that he puts right in front of us. That is what it means. It doesn't mean asceticism, extreme discipline, self-imposed hardship, seeking to suffer for Christ. None of that amounts to discipleship because all of those things can be done for selfish reasons. They can all be motivated by self-glory, as Paul points out in his famous meditation on Christian love in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, look, if I gave all my goods to feed the poor, there's a vow of poverty. If I give my body to be burned, there's martyrdom. But I don't have love, it profits me nothing. It impresses God not at all. So denying oneself does not necessarily amount to denying oneself. 
In other words, we all have ways of denying ourselves that don't deny ourselves at all because they, in fact, feed the flesh. They feed our pride. They feed our ego. They're forms of self-promotion, of self-glory, even if it is through so-called humility. That's what Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2. He says, you've got this whole concept of higher spirituality that's a bunch of do not touch and do not taste and do not handle. And he said, this is all man-made religion. It has the appearance of wisdom and spirituality, but he said it's false humility. All this neglect of the body, he says it's of no value in fighting the flesh. It's of no value in fighting the real flesh. So taking up of one's cross means truly denying one's sinful self at the root level. And that means quite simply this, seeking and doing the will of God. What does true humility look like? Seeking and doing the will of God. What does true spirituality look like? Seeking and doing the will of God. That's what true holiness looks like. And seeking and doing the will of God may well mean for you learning to be joyful and cheerful and kind. That's what it may mean for you. The will of God is what God's word actually tells us, not what we imagine. And what are the things the word of God tells us over and over again? Okay. Ephesians 4, Paul, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, okay? In other words, be a disciple. Live up to what that name means, okay? Here's what it means, Paul. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 1 Peter 1. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, laying aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and evil speaking. Philippians 2. If there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, then fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others better than himself. Colossians 3, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness. We get up in the morning, we put our clothes on. Paul says, this is what you put on. Tender mercies, kindness, humility and meekness and long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, I know that doesn't apply to us because I know nobody here has a complaint against anybody else here. Just as Christ forgave you, so you must also do, and above all these things, put on love. Put on love, the bond of perfection, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called together in one body, and be thankful and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Wisdom, teaching, and helping one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. 
Now that's what it means again and again and again. Every apostle, every epistle, this is what we're told to do. This is what taking up your cross and following Christ means. So let me combine these two thoughts of being willing to die for Christ and then loving one another. We've asked the question, would you die rather than deny the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to die for Christ? Okay, think about the person next to you or the person in the next row from you or anybody else in this room. If they formed a line of all those who are going to die rather than deny Jesus Christ, would you see these same faces in that line? Would you see these same faces in that line? And if the people you see in this room, you believe you would see in that line, you would be able to talk with them in your last few moments, on your way to death, then don't you think you can regard those people as a brother in truth, as a sister in truth, and love them today? Imagine the love that you would feel with them and the unity that you would feel with them and the oneness that you would feel with them in Christ as you stood together waiting to die. I think what we would feel is, I can't believe all the petty little things that I let over the years cause my fellowship with this brother or sister to suffer. Because whatever else, and whatever problems this brother or sister may have, they are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And today I die with them. I think that's what we would think. We would think about all the opportunities we miss to love this person, to really get to know them, to fellowship with them. I think that's what we would think. Well, I think that's what we ought to think today. This is what it really means to take up our cross and follow him. It means, this is what it means to lose our lives and to find them in Christ. And so I say to all of you, there is no better decision than you can ever make and to say, I will follow Christ. I want to lose my life the way I conceive of it, all of my self-promotion, to have what Christ has for me. And I want to do it with his people. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I commend all these things to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.